Well, once again, good morning, and uh, once again, happy Mother's Day to all you moms out there. Uh, and many of you have actually been here at the church building the last couple of days. This might be your third day in a row, uh, because there was a Praying Life seminar uh, Friday evening, Saturday morning. Uh, it is a wonderful, uh, effective, encouraging seminar, obviously, on prayer. Uh, it is held throughout this country and even other parts of the world. It is uh, based on the book by Paul Miller of the same name, A Praying Life. And Paul challenges us with a question. Do you take Jesus' words seriously? Do you really take Jesus' words seriously? Now, I realize some of you here this morning, uh, you wouldn't consider yourself uh, a Christian. You've not uh, yet looked to Jesus. Maybe you're here as a, a seeker, asking questions, wondering, exploring. Uh, maybe you're here, you're very skeptical. Uh, so I would not expect you to answer yes. Uh, but for the rest of us uh, who proclaim the name of Jesus, do we take his words seriously? Do you take Jesus' words seriously when he says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. John 14, 13. In other words, do you take him at his word? Or another way to put it is this. When you pray, do you pray with confidence? Well, Paul Miller points out that if you take Jesus' words seriously, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, it opens the door to the possibility of real hope and real change in and through your life. Now, given that I too often struggle to take Jesus at his word, uh, I find great comfort uh, in Paul Miller's transparent confession. He says this, I do not understand prayer. Prayer is deeply personal and deeply mysterious. Adults try to figure out causation. Little children don't. They just ask. And so this morning we are going to consider prayer uh, as found in 1 John chapter 5, uh, verses 14 through 17. We're going to consider what it is to come and to ask, to come and to be with our God, to come to him confidently taking him at his word. And the hope is, is that we'll not just grow in understanding of this passage, but that it will actually influence our hearts and our lives that we would really pray and pray with greater confidence. And so that brings us to our text, First uh, John chapter 5, verses 14 through 17. If you're using the chair uh, under the, if you're using the chair, if you're using the Bible, Hopefully you're all using chairs. <laughs> if you're using the Bible under the chair in front of you, you'll find that on page 1,023. Uh, but before we hear God's word, let's do the very thing that we're going to hear about this morning, and let's go to him in prayer. We come to you this morning, Lord, we thank you uh, that just as John has been doing throughout this epistle, we pray that you would now do once again, uh, that you would 
assure us more and more of our full acceptance in Christ by you as beloved children in whom you take great delight. And Lord, that this morning you would open your word to us and us to your word. And that ultimately it would overflow in prayer of thanksgiving and courage to you. And we ask it all in Jesus. Amen. So I invite you now to hear the word of God from 1 John chapter 5. And I'll begin with verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know, that you may be certain, that you may be sure that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. And this is God's word. It is given to us for our good, uh, for his glory, and together with God, for our joy. And so to it we turn. As we look at God's word this morning, two basic questions. What is prayer? And what do we learn about prayer here? Uh, What is prayer and even why do we pray? And what do we learn about prayer here in this passage? So first, what is prayer? And and this will give us somewhat of an overview of what we find here in this part of 1 John chapter 5. Now, I was reminded after first service uh, of one one person that I I greatly appreciate, her perspective on prayer, uh, Lisa Simpson of the Simpsons. Prayer is the last refuge of a scoundrel. A great truth. And hopefully as we come to know the Lord... It becomes a first refuge as a scoundrel. A little bit more rooted in tradition would be the Westminster Shorter Catechism. If you've been around our our church tradition for a a while, Presbyterianism, uh, Reformed theology, uh, you're familiar with the Shorter Catechism. And it states this, prayer is offering our desires to God in the name of Christ for things that agree with his will confessing our sins, and thankfully recognizing his mercies. Uh, The famed missionary to India, uh, E. Stanley Jones, puts it this way. Prayer is surrender. Surrender to the will of God in cooperation with that will. If I throw out a boat hook, an anchor, from the boat and catch hold of the shore and pull... Do I pull the shore to me, or do I pull myself to the shore? Prayer is not pulling God to my will, but the aligning of my will to the will of God. 
A prayer is a real means of grace, one of the ways that he communicates his grace deep into our hearts. Real spiritual nourishment, real spiritual power. Most simply, prayer is conversation with God. Prayer is conversation with God. It is our most basic God-directed act. Well, why should we pray? Well, for one, God commands it in Scripture. Throughout Scripture, uh, places like 1 Thessalonians 5, we're told to pray without ceasing. Now, sometimes it's a struggle with prayer, in particular, in particular within our tradition, because we wonder, how does this work with God's sovereignty? But even if we don't understand how the sovereignty of God and human responsibility work together, we pray because God wants us to, because God tells us to. He calls us to. Also, prayer is a means of fellowship with our Heavenly Father. For example, in Luke 11, we see that prayer is like a child going to his earthly father. The child wants something the father is eager to give. However, the father does not give until the child asks. And parents want to give good things, good gifts to their children. But more so, they want a good relationship with them. And our Heavenly Father wants the very same thing. You see, at the heart of prayer is fellowship with God. And then all of life flows from that relationship. So God commands us to pray in Scripture. A prayer is a means of fellowship with our Heavenly Father. And also, prayer changes things. Do you believe that? God's Word says it. Prayer changes things. Uh, just a, a few verses to note, and there, and there are plenty throughout Scripture. Second Chronicles 7.14 would be one. Uh, I bring that up because many of you were a part of the National Day of Prayer. This is always a, a verse uh, that, that that time of prayer is rooted in. Uh, Luke 11, I just mentioned, James 4.2. Prayer changes things. Reformed theologian John Frame says, God ordains prayer as a means to change history. Uh, Blaise Pascal, and I, I love this phrase, says this about human beings, that we are given by our Creator, we are given the dignity of causality. The dignity of causality. In other words, we are given the dignity of being a part of what God is doing. We participate through prayer. We participate with God in His redemptive work. We participate in the transformation of people, ourselves, and others. We participate in the transformation of the world. So that gives us somewhat of an overview of what we find here in 1 John 5. But more specifically, as we look at these verses, more specifically, what do we learn about prayer here in verses 14 through 17? We'll take it in a couple of parts. Uh, so let's begin with those first two verses, uh, verses 14 and 15. If you want to follow along, I will reread them for us. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. So confident prayer is knowing that God hears us. And it's knowing that we have what we've asked of him. 
Now, you rightly say, yeah, but I heard there's a condition in there. There's a condition. And honestly, we get kind of hung up on that condition when we first hear it. So I'm going to come back to it in a moment. But for now, what do you think about prayer? When you think about prayer in general or maybe even in your own prayer life, when you think about prayer, do you think primarily in terms of getting something or knowing someone? Well, our practice reveals our true belief. And so as I've been working through this passage over the last few days, I've I've examined my own prayer life. And honestly, it's often focused more on getting something. And yet prayer is primarily about knowing someone, not about getting something. It's about knowing and being known. The goal of prayer is communion with God, communion with our creator, the king of the universe. Now, I know this will be a stretch for some of you, but have you ever been on the phone with an annoyed customer service agent? You know, it might even be because your phone is not working, but there is something that's broken, something that's that's just not working, and you have to make the dreaded call to customer service. And you can tell as soon as the phone is picked up on the other side of the line, you can tell the person is just annoyed and you haven't even said anything yet. Now, do you think that they really care about you? No. I mean, you know that they don't. In fact, if you're, you're honest, you could care less about getting to know them. You've got a problem, and you need it fixed. You just want something to get done. Fix my appliance or, or whatever it is. But sometimes all you get is put on hold or maybe transferred to another country. <laughs> well, a lot of us think about prayer like that. A lot of us think that that's how it works, but praying to God is not about picking up a a spiritual phone and calling some uninterested, uncaring, annoyed, heavenly customer service agent. Not at all. Prayer is conversation with a God who deeply loves his children and desires that they know his love for them. God longs for us to know him. To be known by him. He calls us to himself. He invites us to know him in prayer. To cast our anxieties on him. Knowing that he cares for us. Tim Keller points out that John's concern is not merely that people would be convinced that they've been born from above and accepted by God. As important as that is. It's really only a means to an end. And I've mentioned it already. The goal is that we enjoy relationship with the one who has given us new birth and established our acceptance. Our assurance of our acceptance has the inevitable consequence of assuring us that God hears us. That when we speak, God really hears us. And also that he enjoys fellowship with us. Thus a growing assurance leads to growing confidence in prayer. Well, again, as you're well aware, John does give a significant condition for having assurance in prayer. Verse 14, 
We must pray according to God's will. So the Bible talks about uh, the will of God in two ways. It speaks of God's sovereign will, uh, which determines all events. This is hidden and we can't normally know it ahead of time. The Bible also speaks of God's moral will, uh, the way that he desires that people relate to one another and relate to him, the way that we live. And he, he reveals this in his word, uh, both in the Bible and in Jesus. And praying according to God's will, it's not about second-guessing his hidden sovereign will, but rather about praying in accord with God's revealed will. As we discover, as we come to better understanding, as we work through the beauty of the pages of Scripture, as He makes Himself known to us. So simply put, it's asking for those things which God desires and has promised to give. So we grow in this as we spend time reading God's Word and praying through that reading, learning what His concerns and purposes are. And as we do this, we find that his concerns become our concerns. Now, a lot of times when we talk about praying according to God's will, and maybe this was your first reaction when you heard it in verse 14, is we begin to think, all right, it's the big fight. His will versus my will. It's the big battle. The win-lose battle. And sometimes that's the case. But as we grow in our relationship with God, he des his desires become our desires. And ultimately, it's a win-win. Think of it this way. Think back to a, a class that I had in, in college, and it was, it was called Communication and Conflict. Uh, loved the professor, uh, Randy Rogan, and uh, we noticed towards the end of the class, it was a, a spring term, and we noticed towards the, the end of the, the class, there were a few weeks where he was missing. He just, he wasn't there, and then he'd be there. He wasn't there, and then he would be there the next day. And we, none of us really figured it out. And Well, what was happening is he was a hostage negotiator, crisis negotiator, and he was being flown by the FBI to Waco uh, and trying to work through the issue uh, with the Branch Davidians. Well, one of the things we talked about in that class was how do you deal with, with crisis situations? And so, if you think, so, take someone, they're, they're, they're in a hostage situation. They've been taken hostage. Do you know what one of the most important things that they can do is? Okay, because here we've got two parties, differing wills, differing goals, differing objectives, differing allegiances. One of the most important things to do is to, be, is to build rapport with your captor, to build a relationship to some degree with him. And so rather than remaining a thing, an object, just merely a captive, you actually become someone, a person, just like him. And there's power in relationship. You see, it's through that relational connection that his heart can be more aligned to yours in the sense of better understanding, more empathy, uh, more sympathizing with your situation, which makes more likely your survival. Well, for us, 
who were once enemies of God. It's through relationship with him that our rebellious, sinful hearts become more and more aligned with his. Again, as we grow in our relationship with God, his desires become our desires. And thus the psalmist can say, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And so we pray, confident that God is doing a work, both a work in us and also a work through us. As John explains, God works through prayer. And so now there's a shift in this short passage. John now gives an example, an example of confident prayer, life-giving prayer in our struggle with sin. And he does a great thing here because John realizes just as much as you and I do that our prayers can so easily turn within ourselves. We can spiral just deep down into just me. And so John takes us outside of ourselves into love for one another. So let's make that shift now to verses 16 and 17. Again, if you want to follow along, I'll reread those for us. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Okay, verse 16. If I don't deal right now with the sin that leads to death, nobody's going to hear anything else that I say. So let's talk about it. The sin that leads to death. What in the world is this? Well, if we were to walk back through all of 1 John, judging by what John says throughout his epistle, it most likely refers to those who have been exposed to the truth, but then have deliberately distorted it, hardening their hearts to it and thus turning from it. As one commentator says, it is this complete, overt, and rebellious rejection of the truth that John probably has in mind. Most likely he would say that the false teachers, we met them, the false teachers, back in chapter 2. He would say that the false teachers had committed it by rejecting Jesus as God come in the flesh and Savior of sinners. Now, note that John states, I do not say that one should pray for that. John does not actually say that we should not pray for such people. We can, but what he's getting at is that it won't do much good. Because the issue is that these people are not repenting, not even about to repent. And forgiveness only comes to the repentant. Not those willfully rejecting and distorting the truth. Many scholars believe this sin is synonymous with the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit. Jesus talks about that in the Gospels. And some of you have wondered about that, even worried about it yourselves, wondering have you committed that sin? Unknowingly, you, you, you have no idea, and it haunts you. 
the unpardonable, the unforgivable sin. And that is a tragic weight to carry. Uh, I, I remember vividly a good friend of mine uh, coming up against this uh, during our, our undergrad days together. And he was petrified. He couldn't point to anything, but he was sure that he had committed this sin. He didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to say. And so I finally went to one of my professors that I, I, I knew he was a Christian. And I, I asked, help me understand what's going on here. And he said something like this. And if you have ever, ever worried about it, I want you to hear this. He said, there's one thing you can say with certainty about this sin. If you're concerned that you might have committed it, you most certainly have not done so. A person who has hardened his heart against the truth to this degree would not have enough tenderheartedness before God to even imagine himself guilty of it, to even care. So if that has been a burden for you, the fact that you are concerned, concerned shows a tenderheartedness, a sensitivity, a heart that is turned to God and open to his work in your life. And ask him to give you peace. Assurance, again, one of the very things John has been working into our lives in this letter. Now, we need to move from the sin that leads to death because if we stay on it, we're going to miss the main point. Uh, the sin that leads to death, it, it's not actually John's emphasis here in these couple of verses. Uh, John's focus in these two verses is that Christians should pray for fellow believers in our struggle with sin. Because just as the slight turn of a, of a ship's rudder, large ocean liner, slight turn of the, the small rudder, eventually will take it way off course, even to destruction. Uh, now, I was reminded, just even thinking of that illustration of uh, a pilot in our congregation, Nathan Kiwit, uh, as he was beginning to fly with a, it was a new pilot with the airline that he is now flying with, and they warned him over a certain part of the Pacific where he flew, you need to pay very, very careful attention on your flight plan because if you veer off just a bit, you will be in North Korean airspace. Okay, not a good thing to happen. Not a good thing to happen for us either. Because unchecked sin, though seemingly only slight at first, will eventually take a Christian way off course into danger, shipwrecked. And the time to intervene, the time to intercede is early. Early, before a person has become hardened, before they, they begin turning away from God. And this is why Christian community is so important. John is addressing an issue here, uh, really picking it a, a place that is very difficult for the church today. Because in many ways we've become very individualized. And, and John is calling us to move from isolation to belonging, to really be a part of the family of faith. This is why honest, authentic, transparent 
Christian community is so vitally important for your health and well-being. That's what John is calling us to. So that we might know and be known. That we might love and be loved. That we might pray for and that we might be prayed for. Because through prayer, as God's word says, as John emphasizes, through prayer, life will be given. Be given to the individual. The individual will be strengthened in the battle against sin, which is a battle for all of us. I'm reminded of a a friend and, and fellow pastor on the West Coast. And when his oldest child, a daughter, was in college, uh, she was on the East Coast. So you got, what, 3,000 miles or so apart. And she was a wild child. Um, She was a party-hard kind of girl, and her dad worried about her all the time. But we learn in Scripture to turn worry into prayer. And so he would pray for his daughter. And one day she called. She called her dad, and the first thing out of her mouth was, Dad, have you been praying for me? And he said, yes, I have. Why do you ask? And she said, Dad, because I'm miserable. I'm miserable in my sin. Please help me, Daddy. Please help. What a great picture. A great picture of our loving God at work through the confident prayer of a father for his rebellious, struggling, wayward daughter. She was given strength to repent, to turn from her sin, and to turn to God. Again, just as we're all called to pray for others, we we need the prayer too. We all struggle with sin. And as another fellow pastor has said, our father does not want any of his children to fall into sin and make shipwreck of their lives. His will is that all his children should be recovered and rescued. And prayer is one of the principal means he uses to restore them. As we pray, God is at work. Through our prayer, God gives life. Well, here we are, near the end of John's letter. And John wraps up this brief section on prayer with emphasis on praying for one another and our struggle with sin and in our fight, our fight to grow in godliness. And again, 1 John 5:16 says, If anyone sees, as you see, a brother committing a sin not leading to death, you shall ask, and God will give him life. Well, this is very similar to another 5.16. James 5.16 reads, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray. Pray for one another that you may be healed. For the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. For the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. 
Through faith in Jesus Christ, we are credited with his righteousness. On the cross, our sin credited to him. Through faith, his righteousness credited to us. For God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. And so we are. Thus we pray as righteous persons. And our prayer is, whether we sense it or not, our prayer is powerful and effective. God has ordained it. So brothers and sisters, pray boldly, resting in Jesus. Come, come to God in confident prayer, knowing that he hears knowing that he is at work. And let's do that now. Please join me in prayer. Father, thank you that you love us. Thank you that in Jesus we are fully accepted by you. Uh, Not merely tolerated, but But we are now beloved sons and daughters in whom you take great delight. Thank you for the the righteousness of Christ. For his righteousness through which we can come in confident prayer. Lord, would you continue to grow us in this. That we might be assured more and more of our acceptance with you. And enjoy being a part of your redemptive work. And we ask it all in Jesus. Amen.